As always is the case, I do consider it a privilege to speak concerning the Word of God, and I hope what we have to consider for a little while would be helpful to you, <clears throat> excuse me, encouraging to you and edifying to you in some way. I preached this sermon about four years ago, and I really think it's very important not only to have lessons that are practical, that are relevant, things that are encouraging and edifying, but it's also important that we teach and preach things that are doctrinal. You know, I think that there are things that we practice in our Christian life and things that we do as the church, but the question is, can you all or can I, can all of us defend it? The title of our lesson today is Bible Classes and Sunday School. And I want to take Acts chapter 20 and verse 7 as our introductory text. Hang on one second. In Acts 20 and verse 7, the Bible says, Now on the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul, ready to depart the next day, spoke to them and continued his message until midnight. I think there's really three things that really make us stand out with the religious world. Number one is we sing without instruments of music. Number two is we have one loaf and one cup on the Lord's table, and we commune every Sunday. And number three, we don't have Sunday school and we don't have kids' church, as it's often called today. And I'll tell you this, of all the things that people have asked me as a Christian, if you invite them to services and they're visitors and we welcome them and we want them here, and many times they'll say, how come you don't have Sunday school? How come you don't have kids' church? I mean, after all, don't the little guys have to learn too? Well, the question is, why do we do the things that we do? Why do we practice the things that we practice? There is a answer to that. But let me just say at the very outset of our lesson, Bible classes, and this is very important, Bible classes are not a method of teaching. Bible classes are an unauthorized type of assembly for teaching the Word of God. So the question before us today is not whether the Bible classes are a scriptural method of teaching, it's whether Bible classes are a scriptural method of assembly for public teaching in the church. Okay, where did Bible classes come from? Where did they originate? Did they always exist? Well, according to World Book Encyclopedia, volume 17 and page 790, it says this, the present-day Sunday school movement was started in Gloucester, England, by the publisher Robert Rakes. In 1780, he launched his ragged school. He tried to aid the children of the poor in his community by teaching them reading, writing, and the principles of religion in America. The Sunday school movement became widespread after the Revolutionary War. However... According to history, these Sunday schools were not connected with church organizations until 1814. And since that time, many religious affiliations have adopted this denominational practice from our Methodist friends with various modifications. Okay, let me just ask this. When you talk about the church, I have to say, the church is not a denomination. Okay? I got in a Bible discussion just the other day with somebody that asked me that very question. And I said, 
I said that the church of Christ is not a denomination. And here's what distinguishes the two. A denomination really means a part of something else. In fact, one definition for denomination is this. A religious group that has different beliefs from other groups, but they're all professing to be the same. They're all professing to be Christians. So the different practices and different beliefs between them or among them are what causes them to be called a denomination. They are a part of the whole. But the church of Christ is not a part of anything. The church of Christ is the whole of God's people. So what do we believe in the church? What do we believe in? We believe that we do things that are according to a Bible pattern. And it not only happens in the New Testament, even going back to the Old Testament. Notice this passage in 1 Chronicles 28, beginning in verse 11. Then David gave his son Solomon the plans, or the King James says pattern, for the vestibule, its houses, its treasuries, its upper chambers, its inner chambers, the place of the mercy seat, and the plans, again, pattern in the King James, for all that he had by the Spirit of the courts of the house of the Lord, of all the chambers all around, of the treasuries of the house of God, and of the treasuries for dedicated things. Verse 19 says, And all, all this David said, The Lord made me understand in writing by his hand upon me even all the works of this pattern. So, there are patterns for assembly, and it goes all the way back to the Old Testament. What I want to notice is, I want to notice these three passages, one after another, from the Old Testament. Notice, in, first, in Deuteronomy chapter 12, and verse beginning in there in verse, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 31, beginning in verse 12. Gather the people together, men and women and little ones, and the stranger who is with your gates that they may hear and that they may learn to fear the Lord, your God, and carefully observe all the words of this law, and that their children who have not known it may appear and learn to fear the Lord, your God, as long as you live in the land which you cross the Jordan to possess. Please notice, in the assembly there was men, there were women, and there were little ones. Not only that, there were strangers who is with their gates. And in that assembly, they heard and they learned. The children learned to fear the Lord. They heard and they learned to fear the Lord in an undivided assembly. What about Deuteronomy chapter 6, beginning in verse 7? You shall teach them diligently to, to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and shall be as frontlets between your eyes. I had to uh, put this passage up because, listen, please get this. It is not the church's responsibility to teach our kids. It is not. Kids come together in the assembly and they learn too. But my responsibility is to train my children. And prayerfully, they will stay as they should be in their life. But it's my responsibility. It's the parents' responsibility to train their children. It's not the church's responsibility to do that. And it's not the responsibility of a congregation to break off into a group to train the little ones. That is done 
in the home. In fact, the Bible says you shall bind them as a sign on your hand. In other words, the word of God as a sign on their hands describing what you do. That's your actions. In other words, in all of your actions, do it with the word of God. And frontlets between your eyes, in all of your direction, it's the word of God that guides you. That's the frontlets before your eyes that is figurative. Hands and eyes, your direction and your actions. So, it's the responsibility of parents to do that. Also, notice this. In Joshua chapter 8 and verse 35. There was not a word of all that Moses had commanded, which Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel. Listen to this. Who were they? All the assembly of Israel, women, little ones, and strangers who were living among them. So nowhere in the Bible does it talk about, in the Old Testament, does it talk about uh, any kind of a segregated uh, assembly. They didn't break up into groups. They didn't do that. They came together in one place. You might ask, well, that's the Old Testament. Why is that significant? That is significant because God sees the end with the beginning. I don't think that there's an accident there. I don't think it was just thrown in there. I think it was for a purpose. And the reason that I say that is, in all the things that God has done in the Old Testament, going all the way back to when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden and God prepared coats of skins, it was the first time the innocent would die for the guilty. God sees the, uh, the end with the beginning. The same is true with the assembly. God sees the end with the beginning. And in the Old Testament, these are things that we learn. We, uh, they're for our learning, and we're instructed by that. We find that they met in an undivided assembly. All right, what about the New Testament pattern? In the Bible, we get Bible authority by command, by example, by a positive statement, and by inference or implication. So in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 25, we have there the, we are to assemble ourselves together by command. The example is found on the first day of the week. We have a positive statement that's found in Acts chapter 11 and verse 26 that says, they assembled with the church. Furthermore, in, Acts, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 20, they came together in one place. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and verse 23, it puts the two together. Notice, the whole church came together in one place. If people ask, why don't we have Sunday school? The Bible pattern is coming together. First of all, we are commanded to assemble. The example is on the first day of the week. We are to assemble with the church. We are to assemble with the church in one place. That is the Bible pattern for scriptural assembly. And that's why, that's why we do that. But you know, there's also another thing too. And that is by inference or implication. In Acts chapter 15, verses 30 and 31, it says, And when they were sent off or dismissed, they came to Antioch, and when they had gathered the multitude together, they delivered the letter. When they read it, they rejoiced over its encouragement. So, the very fact that they were dismissed infers they were assembled. How were they assembled? The whole church coming together in one place. Now, let's talk about the method of teaching for just a moment. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and verse 31... 
Paul says, for you can all prophesy one by one, that all may learn and all may be encouraged. All right. In this passage, we don't know who the all are. But whoever it is, whoever's going to be in the all, whoever's going to be doing the speaking, it's to be done one at a time, one by one, that they may learn and all would be encouraged. So whoever that is, it is a person speaking one, one, uh, one speaker at a time. Okay. So who is that? 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 34 and 35. It's the men. Let your women keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but they are to be submissive as the law also says. And if they want to learn something, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is a shame, it is shameful for a woman to speak in the church. All right. This was not a statement against women. And when the Bible says in the church, it doesn't mean that a woman can never say anything anywhere, anytime, anyplace. When we read in the church, it means, get this, in the assembly. That's all. So in the assembly, we have all we just already proved somebody's going to speak one at a time. Who are they? That's the men. And in that assembly, the women are silent. In the assembly of the church. Okay. Now, Paul gives the reasons in 1 Timothy chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. And I have to tell you, before we go to this passage, I was listening on the radio. And the, the radio, there's a guy on there, and he was answering questions. Some preacher of some sort. People were calling in and they were saying, okay, how come this and how come that? And this guy would just give whatever answer he thought was correct. Somebody called in, it was a lady, and said, how come we don't have any kind of, I don't know, women preachers? And Paul says that women are to be silent. And this man says we should have women teachers. Paul just had a problem with women. What, that, 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 that is a ridiculous position. In, second, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, you know what I would rather do? Instead of coming up with what I think, I, and by the way, i got to share this with you. My father, when we were kids, we had to sit around a table, and this was kind of a game, kind of a fun thing we did, and he would throw something out at us, and we had to answer, us kids, we had to answer the objection, we had to support our position, we had to do so with book, chapter, and verse. I'll never forget one day I says, but dad, I think, and he stopped me right there. He said, let me just make something very clear. Nobody cares what you think, especially the Lord. The Lord cares about what the Lord thinks. So book, chapter, and verse is a better way to describe what we answer and what our positions are rather than, well, Paul just had a problem with women. In fact, 1 Timothy chapter 2, here's the reason. Here are the reasons. Let the women learn in silence with all submission. And I do not permit a woman to teach nor have authority over a man, but to be in silence. Notice the reason. Here they are, beginning in verse 13. For Adam was formed first, then Eve... And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell in the transgressions. So whether I like it, whether I like it or not, really is irrelevant. Paul said, let the women learn in silence with all submission. When and where? When they're in the assembly of the Lord's church, the public assembly. Get more. We'll get back to public and private later. But here's the reason. 
For Adam was formed first, then Eve. Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell in the transgression. And for that, there are reasons that the women are to learn in silence. So says the great apostle Paul. What else? Well, not only is it going to be men that speak, but in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 2. And the things that you have heard from among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Now, I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but you know exactly, you know exactly this point. If a person is not a faithful man, he will have no influence whatsoever in teaching the word of God. It doesn't mean, by the way, that we reach some sort of higher level of spirituality or some higher level of perfection. That's not what that means either. I'm talking about a faithful Christian. If a man is not faithful and has that kind of influence as being faithful, he will have no impact whatsoever. But not only that, Paul said that the men that are going to teach are exclusive to those that are faithful men. Okay. Faithful men are the ones to teach. All right, here's the question. Can a woman ever teach? Can a woman ever teach? Well, let's talk about the method of teaching in public and private. Acts chapter 18, beginning in verse 24. Now, a certain Jew named Apollos, born at Alexandria, an eloquent man and mighty in the scriptures, came to Ephesus. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in spirit, He spoke and taught accurately the things of the Lord, though he knew only the baptism of John. So he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Aquila and Priscilla heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately or perfectly. The word privately or aside means private. In the King James Version, it says they took him unto themselves. Now, when people say, I've heard, I've actually heard this. Priscilla and Aquila were actually there, yes, but Aquila was the man. So Priscilla, she was there, but she must have just served coffee and whatever. No, that's not what it says. It says, so he began to speak boldly in the synagogue when Aquila and Priscilla heard him. They took him aside and they explained to him the way of God more accurately. Can a woman teach a man? Yes, she can. It's not a matter of men and women. Please get that. It's not a male and female issue. It is a public and private issue. So here was a man that was speaking, an eloquent man speaking publicly. They took him unto themselves, which means they took him aside. They brought him to a private setting. And they, they expounded unto him or they explained to him the way of God more accurately. So let me just say this. Where a woman may teach, which is privately, she may teach anyone, whether it's a man, a woman, or a child. Where she may not teach, which is publicly, she may not teach anyone, whether that's a man, a woman, or a child. All right. So what's public and private? What's public and private? What's the difference? I have to share something with you. I was talking to somebody one time in a congregation somewhere. Actually, I was holding a meeting in another state. And the person was trying to tell me, he really meant well, he's trying to tell me that they had had a private study. 
And it was at a certain time on Wednesday night, and it was in the building. And I said, well, how is it private? You got it on the sign. You announce it. People know about it, and everybody's welcome. If you have a public assembly, and it's for anyone and everyone, and all are welcome, that's no longer private. In fact, here's the difference between public and private. According to Webster's Dictionary, public is this. It is that which is supported by or for the benefit of the people as a whole. It's open to all. I like what Darren said one time. This is really a good way to put it. This is the easiest way to, to figure out whether, some, whether it is a public or a private gathering. Did you announce it? If you announced it, it's no longer private. If you announced it and everybody's welcome, it's public. So that, that's really the point. Two things. One, did you announce it? And two, was everybody welcome? If that's the case, it's no longer private. It is, uh, it, it is public. What about this? What is a private gathering? It is that which is not freely available to the public. It's carried on by an individual independently rather than under the institutional or organizational direction or support. That is a private setting. Bible classes that are open to all, supported for the benefit of the people as a whole, they are public functions, and such an assembly for teaching the Word of God is not authorized in Scriptures. Now, let's talk about this, because many people misunderstand Scriptures because they can't tell the difference if a passage is literal or figurative. And you know exactly what I'm going to say when you talk about the Revelation letter. After a private Bible study on Thursday night, somebody shared with me something in the kitchen of the house that we had the study at. And this person said that they were talking to somebody about, about the, the idea of uh, literal and figurative. And this person said, and I made the statement, I said, you know, it's amazing how many people know nothing about Jesus. But they seem to know everything about the end of times. They seem to know everything about the Revelation letter. This person said in response to that, yeah, I was talking to somebody the other day that said, when you start studying the Bible, don't study about Jesus, study the Revelation letter. Really? First of all, when you take someone into the body of Christ, when you reach out to try to convert somebody, you have to convert them to Jesus first. You have to convert them to Jesus the most important thing is converting them to Jesus. They can learn the revelation letter down the road. We want to study about Jesus. But the problem is, is the misinterpretation of what is literal and what is figurative. So we'll notice biblical interpretation. And by the way, there's a rule for hermeneutics describing what is literal and figurative. And that's this. Every word, statement, or passage must be understood literally unless one is forced to understand it figuratively. That means when I open up the Word of God, I have to assume that the wording there is literal unless a literal interpretation of that passage does not make any sense and violates other scriptures and it is something that, that is impossible. One scholar wrote that the communication between the writer and the reader can only take place if the reader attaches the same meetings to the words of the writer that the writer gave them. If the reader is arbitrarily making the words figurative, then no communication takes place. 
And I'm going to give you a great example of that. A great example before we go to exegesis and eisegesis interpretation. Okay? Here's a great example. People that are advocates for individual cups on the Lord's table. Okay? Advocates of that say, when the Bible talks about cup, it is talking figuratively and it means the contents. So it really doesn't matter. The container doesn't matter. The number of containers do not matter. All that matters is the contents, and the cup itself is a figure when it says this cup. No. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 25, when Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, this cup is the New Testament in my blood. The cup that we're going to see in just a few minutes. The cup is the New Testament in the blood of Christ, which is the contents. The cup and the contents is the communion of the blood of Jesus Christ. Literally. Not figuratively. And you know what happens sometimes, folks, is these two words right here. Big fancy words, but they're really simple. Exegesis or an exegetical interpretation is a drawing out the meaning in the context that it was given. And by the way, there's nothing better than ever studying a Bible passage or even teaching from a Bible passage in the context that it was written. That is an exegetical or exegesis, drawing out the meaning. Eisegesis is putting in one's own personal meaning. You ever known somebody did that? Anybody, by the way, that says... I know what that says, but I kind of think. They are putting an eisegesis or eisegetical interpretation on that passage. They're not going with what the Word of God says. They're plugging in their own interpretation. And folks, I'm going to tell you, we've got a world filled with people that plug in whatever interpretation that they want. We just can't do that. What distinguishes people... This congregation, for example, from the religious world that's all around us, we believe in following the Bible pattern. We believe in drawing out the meaning and sticking to it. Simple. All right. Let me give you a couple examples of literal and figurative using the same word. And that's the word fox. In Judges chapter 15, we have a literal uh, interpretation of that word. And then in, also in Luke chapter 13, we have a figurative one. Let me show you what I mean. In Judges chapter 15 and verse 4, okay, and this is when Samson captured 300 foxes and used them to drag firebrands through the crops of the Philistines. In Judges 15 and verse 4, then Samson went and caught 300 foxes, and he took torches and turned the foxes tail to tail and put a torch between each of their tails. That is literal. There were literal 300 foxes. Literal interpretation. And remember the rule. Remember the rules of hermeneutics, which is interpreting Scripture. You have to assume that the passage is literal until a literal interpretation is impossible. So, in this, it's possible. In this, it's probable. In this, it makes sense that we're talking about literal, real animals, real foxes. Okay. Let's talk about another one. Let's talk about, in a figurative sense, from the words of Jesus. In Luke chapter 13, verses 31 and 32. On that very day, some Pharisees came saying to him, Get out and depart from here, for Herod wants to kill you. 
And he said to them, go tell that fox. Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I shall be perfected. Is he talking about a literal fox? No, a literal fox doesn't make any sense. So a literal interpretation of that passage cannot be given. We have to assume it's figurative. Who's the fox? Herod. Figurative language. So when you look in the Bible and you want to know if it's figurative or literal, go back to the little scenario. It must be literal unless a literal interpretation is not possible. One passage with fox, yep, that's possible. That makes sense. We could take it literally. This one has to be figurative. Has to be figurative. All right. The final thing I want to notice to sum up our remarks today and why we don't break up the assembly and why we don't have Sunday school. And folks really want to know that. Why, why don't you do that? I'll tell you why we don't do that. Here's the reasons. We believe that we are people of the pattern. We follow the pattern. God has always instructed us to follow the plans or the pattern. It goes all the way back to the Old Testament. They met in an undivided assembly. Who were present in that undivided assembly? Men, women, children, and strangers. Going all the way back to the Old Testament. Very significant. God sees the end with the beginning. Number two. In the New Testament, how did they meet? They met in an undivided assembly. The whole church came together in one place. And who were present? Men, women, children, and visitors. All present, all in that same gathering. The method of teaching was not only one man speaking at a time, but faithful men that spoke one at a time. We talked about the idea of public versus private. Rules for teaching. Where a woman can teach, for example, she can teach anyone, a man, woman, or child. Where she cannot teach publicly, she can't teach anyone, man, woman, or child. And finally, the rules of biblical interpretation. The rules of literal and figurative. We must assume that the passage is literal. Unless a literal interpretation is impossible, then it must be figurative. Okay, I'm, I'm finished, but I want to say one final thing to you. It matters that all of you and me can defend why we believe the way we believe. Do you know why? What if you just said to somebody, hey, how come you don't have Sunday school? Well, we just, we're, we're against that. It's in the Bible somewhere. They didn't do that in the Bible. Do you know that somebody at some point in time can offer a better argument than you to make more sense to have something that is diametrically opposed to the Scriptures? It's imperative that we can not only know what the Scriptures are, but be able to defend it. Why do we have one loaf and one cup on the Lord's table? Why? Can you defend it? I'm talking about after you obey the gospel, we know, how, we know how, what it means to be a Christian, but can you defend why we believe the way we believe? What about this? Remember the very beginning in our introduction? What about our music? 
I hear people say all the time, oh, I just love the music over at so-and-so. The, mu- the band is wonderful. It's just wonderful music. You know what? It may be wonderfully sounding stuff, but why do we believe that we must meet in an undivided assembly and sing without instruments of music? Can you defend that? I'll tell you something. If you can, it'll make you strong. It'll make you rooted and grounded in the truth. It'll make you, no matter what comes your way, you will not deviate. You will not pull up stakes. You will not quit. You'll stay firm all the way. And you'll take the word of God and just maybe you can plant the seed in the heart of somebody that needs it. And just maybe you might have influence converting them to the truth that's found in the word of God. We thank you for listening to our podcast put on by the Church of Christ at 2215 Plans Road in Bakersfield. If you would like any additional information or you would like to receive a free Bible correspondence course by mail, please email us at info at churchofchristbakersfield.com. Our service times are Sundays at 1030 a.m. and 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 730 p.m. Please make plans to join us. We would love for you to be our honored guest.